Hello, everyone. We're glad you found us, and welcome to our podcast at antiqueauctionforum.com. We hope you find this show entertaining and informative. Hi everyone, this is Martin Willis, and on the other line we have the curator to Monticello, Susan Stein. How are you, Susan? I'm great. Thank you again, Martin, for inviting me to uh, join you on your show. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Um, Can you tell me, first of all, how you ended up being the curator of Monticello? Sure. I've been here for a very long time, over 20 years, and Hmm. uh, I've had an early interest in Jefferson sparked by a visit to Independence Hall when I was eight years old, and I've pretty much been interested in American history in this period and art um, since an early point in my life. So this is um, a great place to be, and I've had a terrific time. Many of my colleagues and I believe that we are privileged to be able to study Jefferson and Monticello. Now, are we, are we calling you at Monticello right now? Yes. I'm. Well, I'm not actually in Monticello, the house, but I'm on um, property owned by the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, the organization which owns and operates Monticello. I see. How much land in total is with uh, Monticello? We have about 2,400 acres mm. of Jefferson's original 5,000. Wow, nice. And it is a a beautiful um, rural site in central Virginia. We have um, mountain views on clear days, um, views of the Blue Ridge Mountains, and you really have a sense that you're kind of in Jefferson's world when you're here. I'm I'm sure of that. Now, I know when he was young, he used to go up there with Dabney Carr on their horse and wanted to build there. He said he was going to build there one day, and he started out with a little tiny place at first, right? Yeah, um, this was an, a very long building project. <laughs> the, it took at least 40 years, over 40 years, for Jefferson to realize his ultimate vision for Monticello. And he began in 1769 when he hired some enslaved people belonging to someone else in the in the county to come and dig um, cellars for him. So that's the, one of the earliest uh, bits of information we have about it. You know, things were still going on in the house regarding its construction until at least 1823, three wow. years before Jefferson's death. <laughs> that's so a long time. But in fairness uh, to Jefferson, it really was two completely different or two different plans. Uh, The one that he embarked on in 1769 was very Palladian, uh, derived perhaps from Jefferson's study of the Villa Cornaro and the Villa Saraceno, both published in Palladio's Four Books of Architecture. And that eight-room house was greatly expanded in beginning in the late 1790s after Jefferson returned from Paris and was 
inspired by the architecture that he had seen there. Wow. Now, how many times do you think that he tore down and rebuilt in, in that you know, 40 that, years? You know, you, uh, that, that's great that you are, uh, that you know that what Jefferson said, that putting up and pulling down <laughs> one of um, my favorite amusements he is mm-hmm. said to have said. And I don't, I don't know that it's constant putting up and pulling down. I think what, what he means is it's the action of architecture that's interesting to him. So I think you can say he put Monticello one up. It was never completely finished, however, and he <laughs> took part of it down and built around it and expanded it. I don't know that he, I think that sometimes it's a little misleading because it sounds like he was the person who couldn't make up his mind, and I don't think that that was exactly it. I think that he was more um, interested in refining his ideas and perfecting them. Now, was his earlier structures brick also? Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. It was uh, also brick, and of course, the brick here was burned from um, clay dug right here at Monticello. Thomas Jefferson dies in um, 1826, 50 years after he signed the Declaration. Then a exactly. year, yeah, I know it's amazing. Then a year later, uh, on January 15th, there's a dispersal sale, an auction. Um, did the property, it's the real estate itself, sell at that time as well? No, the real estate, the property didn't sell until a few years later, and it was first purchased by a doctor named James Barkley who um, used and occupied the house and then uh, decided that he really couldn't make a go of it here, you know, here at Monticello and ultimately sold it to a man named Uriah Phillips Levy who was a fifth generation American and, um, and I think the first Jewish commissioned naval officer in the U.S. Navy. Hmm. And Levy admired Jefferson and his fellow patriots and ended up buying Monticello and really preserving it. It was uh, Levy's interest in the house was probably the first real action in in what became a movement to preserve the homes of great men. Now, did Levy um, try to get any of the pieces back to Monticello that were sold at that auction? Yeah, we think that, well, I don't know that he got pieces back that were literally sold at the auction, but he he and his um, nephew, Jefferson Monroe Levy, who eventually acquired the house, um, they took very good care of the house and they tried to reassemble some of um, Jefferson's belongings. There are things that came to us from the Levy family. Oh, mm-hmm. At this point, the uh, Jefferson Foundation was formed and well, how did all that happen? What happened is that in toward the um, early 20th century, there was a movement afoot for the government, potentially, to acquire Monticello. But that didn't take place. There was a woman named Maud Littleton Um, who tried to make that happen and her efforts failed. But ultimately, a group was formed called the Thomas Jefferson Memorial Foundation, and it was mainly consisted of people from New York and Virginia who got together 
to acquire Monticello from Jefferson Monroe Levy and open it to the public. Hmm. And foundation was formed and Monticello was purchased in December of 1923 and opened to the public sometime in 1924. And since that historic moment, millions and millions of people have visited Monticello. Hmm. About how many a year would you say? Well, right now, um, about 450,000 people per year. Wow. But more than a million people visit our award-winning website, which is www.monticello.org. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, um, the upper level, you you say that's being worked on presently? Yeah. we um, Restoration and scholarship are year-round constant activities here. Here um, at Monticello, scholarship and study really drive our our mission. And we have lots of projects underway. Um, among them are refurnishing of the of Monticello's two upper floors, the second and third floor. And that involves digging into Jefferson's documents, into his account books, into letters, into drawings, into notes, just to find out every scrap of information we possibly can assemble that would help us understand how particular spaces functioned, what was in them, what mm. Jefferson thought. And he was, Martin, I'm sure you know, a fantastic record keeper. Yes. So he left very good records. They are not absolutely complete, but they are um, far better than what most sites would have. Um, so we depend on Jefferson's own record. We remarkably turn up new ideas and new things all the time. When I heard he had a 619 page, I think it was, accounting of just the letters that he wrote and received, you can tell he keeps good records. Yes, very, very excellent records. And speaking of records, one of the things that's happening here at Monticello is that we have a staff of 10 editors who are working on editing and publishing what's called the retirement series of the papers of Thomas Jefferson. Hmm. Those are all of the letters written by Jefferson and to Jefferson um, after he retired from the presidency in 1809. Wow. And we're now at work on the fifth volume of that. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> the letters between Adams and himself were already published, is that right? Yes, they, they have been published, and there have been the Papers of Thomas Jefferson Project began in 1949, um, and so they've been underway for some 60 years, and they're now into, gosh, I'm not sure what the, what the latest volume published was. That project is at Princeton University, and yeah. our own is headquartered here, so it's um, conducting those projects in tandem will enable scholars to um, get to the finish line a lot faster. Mm -hmm. Now I have a a two-part question for you here. First of all, what type of effort is there to recover items that were sold, especially in 1827, and how many original objects of Jefferson's are in the house at this point? Since the Foundation's earliest days, we have tried to track every Jefferson object that we hear about. 
and we keep a file called the locator file. And there are, let's just say, 750 files that we've accumulated over time. These are all things that we think might have been Jefferson or are Jefferson. And we add to that all the time. And we try and add to our collection here all the time, too. Mm -hmm. In 1993, a big exhibition was held here called The Worlds of Thomas Jefferson and Monticello, where we brought back about 150 objects that hadn't been at Monticello since um, Jefferson's death, since wow. we just after Jefferson's death. Paintings so, and things? Painting, paintings, although paintings are actually some of the most difficult things to find. Mm -hmm. Because what Jefferson mostly owned were copies of of old master right. paintings, mm -hmm. and these were um, very um, soiled after exposure to decades of candle smoke and, mm. oh, and smoke from lamps. And those artworks were mostly shipped to Boston so that they could be sold in two sales up there. Um, but surprisingly few of Jefferson's original collection survived because the copies weren't prized then because they weren't in good condition. Mm -hmm. So we don't have as many of those pictures as we wish we, we did. Mm -hmm. The second part of the question was how many objects are in the house currently that belong to Thomas Jefferson? Well, it's hard, you know, I, I've, I haven't ever calculated what that number would be, mm -hmm. but I would guess it would be upwards of a thousand things that actually belong to Jefferson. Mm -hmm. And these could range from small things to large. It could be things as little as a toothpick or huh? a toothbrush mm -hmm. to a chair or a painting. I see. Uh -huh. So it, it's all different kinds of things. And one of the things that we're very interested in, you know, we're interested in everything, but one area of study has been um, furniture made in Monticello's joinery. Right. I was going to talk to you about that. Oh, good. Yes. Um, I wanted to find out, were there certain cabinet makers that, um, I, I was looking at some of the Monticello uh, joinery pieces and very unique items. Did Jefferson have influence in the designs of those pieces? Yeah, the Monticello joinery furniture, I think, was the result of the collaboration of Jefferson and some of the um, joiners who worked here. And as you know, Jefferson designed Monticello, this important architectural work, which is, by the way, on the World Heritage List. And the, and the Monticello could not have been built without the participation of very informed house builders, people called joiners. Mm -hmm. And there were several hired white Irish joiners who constructed, who were in charge of the construction of Monticello. And some of them probably were quite good at joining furniture. And a joiner is someone who can um, make furniture essentially without the use of nails, that things are sort of put together. Mm -hmm. And uh, after the house was largely complete in 1809, the hired joiners left 
Jefferson employ at Monticello, and they were succeeded by a man named John Hemmings. And John Hemmings was part of the important enslaved family of Hemmings. And he was a very talented joiner, and a lot of the, you know, we, we, we believe that quite a bit of furniture was made by John Hemmings and his assistant on the property. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the beautiful book stand where you could have at least four books, I believe, open at the same time. Right. Now, that, uh, did that always remain in the home, or was that a retreat? No, that, uh, you know, um, that I'm sure was a family piece that was acquired later, but that is a really interesting piece because it can hold five, um, five books, and it was supported, we think it was supported originally by a pole, possibly with um, tripod feet, and, hmm. and, but the pole doesn't survive anymore. Um, so it's something that can be placed on, on, on a table and it revolves. And we haven't found any precedent for that design. So we will, so we just attribute it to Jefferson because there is mm-hmm. no other design. There is no other thing. Um, but much joiner, joinery furniture uh, has a French influence because hmm. Jefferson spent five years in France right. and his eye and taste were transformed by that experience. And when he was there, it was really at a, a time when neoclassical furniture was being made in the cabinet making shops there. So when Jefferson came back from France, he brought 86 crates of goods. 86 crates of goods followed him home. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And these were first in Philadelphia, but much of the contents of these things made their way into the house itself. And there were 48 chairs, and Jefferson <laughs> acquired, continued to acquire more chairs later. But in any event, you know, if Jefferson hadn't traveled to France, the interior of Monticello would probably just have been American-made furniture from Virginia, from New York, sure. Philadelphia, from places that he had traveled. But his access to France really gave Monticello's interior a very cosmopolitan feel. Mm-hmm. Now, did he invent or did he put together a chair that had window sash rollers that would swivel? Was that his? Yeah, that's a great, um, that's a, a really interesting chair. That chair... It's a revolving chair called a, you know, sometimes called a whirly gig chair, <laughs> was made for him by Thomas Burling in New York. And it could really swivel, you know, in a way, and it had casters. So it was a very modern kind of forward-thinking, kind of forward-looking kind of object. And it also had um, places for candles in the arms. Hmm. Now, while we're on chairs, I know that he had some Campeche chairs, and he had a very difficult time acquiring them. You know, that's a, that's a Campeche chairs are a great topic because they were surely one of Jefferson's favorite forms. One of his granddaughters said that she was wont to see him resting in one in the parlor, reading in it in the after in the late afternoon. 
We know that he tried to order one, which was delayed in reaching him, but we can't actually say when he received the very first Campeche chair, but there have been a number of them associated with Jefferson as well as with other members of his family. The Tritt, um, you might not know that, you might know that name, um, were, um, some of the Trists were in um, New Orleans, and that was a chair form that was very popular there. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's an, uh, uh, one of my colleagues, Diane Aaron Price, has written an article that's coming out shortly in American Furniture um, about Campeche chairs at Monticello. Uh-huh. For our listeners, it's sort of like a sling chair. For someone elderly, it's a much easier chair to, uh, to sit in. Yeah, it's low. It's not. Uh, it's sort of low, and it's and and Jefferson clearly thought that it was a very comfortable chair, and it had its origins in ancient Egypt. There's a Spanish version mm-hmm. of it too. Yeah, with a cross stretcher, I believe. Yeah. Right. We were talking about books earlier. I know Jefferson had something like 6,400-something volumes, which ended yeah, up... Yeah, even more. <laughs> now, he sold them all, uh, which they became the Library of Congress. Uh, right. But he didn't live too long without books. He bought another library. Can you tell yeah. us about that? Um, books, I think, were his constant companions. He mm-hmm. said that he had a canine appetite for reading, in fact. After selling his library to Congress, he did assemble what people refer to as the retirement library. And this was a collection, a much smaller collection. He read during the day and even in the intervals of sleep at night. Now, does Monticello retain notes on Virginia? Yes, but we don't have Jefferson's you know, Jefferson's own copy of that, alas. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have several other editions of it. And that, of course, is a, a very important work by Jefferson. And I, I doubt that it's been out of print since its earliest publication. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Speaking of books, I want to talk about your beautiful book I received oh, in the mail. <laughs> yes. And the name of the book is The Worlds of Thomas Jefferson at Monticello by right. you, Susan Stein. It's a nice, almost coffee table size book, fully illustrated, and what kind of a project was that to put this book together? Well, it was an enormous, an enormous project. It took um, years of research um, on my part, as well as on the part of a number of people who preceded me here at Monticello, because um, uh, there's so much information packed in, in, into it. It's, it really is about uh, the physical Monticello the, and what mm-hmm. Jefferson thought about Monticello, how it was furnished, how he conceived of it, and how he conceived of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, 470 some odd pages, it looks like. Oh gosh, I, I'm not even <laughs> sure. I, I, I know that at one time I knew exactly what that was. Yeah, it is. 472 pages. Now, before I go into a couple of other questions I have, one of the curious things I thought of when I was looking through the items in Monticello was a bust of Alexander Hamilton. Now, I never, I always thought there was a lot of friction between. Yeah, that's right. You never would imagine, would you, that Jefferson would have a uh, a portrait of Hamilton, but he did. (laughs) And 
He said uh, he, there is one account of a visitor who remarked, you know, remarked about how unusual that would be. I guess I yes. can't say. And and Jefferson, I think his response was that they were opposed in death as in life. <laughs> and the amusing part of that, which took me a little while to figure out, was that the was that Hamilton's portrait was nearly life size in this case uh, by um, Chiraki, and Jefferson's was a bit bigger. So I think there is a bit, you know, like some sense of humor for in Jefferson saying that he, you know, they opposed in death as in in life because he in fact loomed larger than Hamilton. <laughs> Long ago I heard that there was a lot of interesting sort of inventive gadgets at Monticello. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about some of those? Yeah, there. I think Jefferson has been, has, I think for a long time, has been labeled as being an inventor of gadgets and what, what we find to be uh, more the case is that he was someone who was uh, sort of the, an early adopter or, of technological improvements. And he believed that the practical application of science could improve the lives of mankind. Hmm. So he grabbed on to all kinds of things. For example, when he was in Paris in the 1780s, he saw a striking match, a phosphoretic match, and he wrote back to um, a friend in the U.S. about this great invention, which would make um, uh, lighting a fire so much easier. Oh yeah. And and at Monticello, what he did was install, for example, we're talking about sort of little sort of technological things that are intriguing. He installed two dumb waiters to carry wine from his wine cellar to his dining room and the dumbwaiters were like little or little elevators that went from the cellar to the first floor and the dumbwaiters were located in the side of the mantel hmm. in the dining room mm -hmm. and that was pretty clever he also had a pair of double-acting doors between the entrance hall or the hall and the parlor so that if you pulled one knob both you know there are two doors um, facing one another like and if you pulled one knob both doors either opened or closed <laughs> is that, that right pretty clever wow mm. that was pretty good and then in his uh, bedchamber which was on the first floor. He had a uh, sort of a circular space for his clothes, and we don't know exactly what what this looked like, but we think that it was a closed pole, some sort of contraption that enabled him to have um, 47 different, I forget the number, but a place, a very interesting way of storing his clothes. Hmm. And then there was the clock in the entrance hall, which everybody marvels at. Oh, yes. You know, great big clock in the entrance hall, um, powered by cannonball-like weights. 
Um, it had to be wound once a week, typically on late on Saturday evening or early on Sunday morning. The room wasn't quite tall enough to accommodate the weight, so rather than recalibrate it, he carved some holes in the floor of the <laughs> hall so the weights could drop to the cellar below. Wow. And that was pretty clever, I think. Yeah. Now, how would he wind that? I mean, would he have to get up on some type of ladder? Yeah, there was a very tall folding ladder, and that ladder survived. Wow. The clock is still in operation, but we use really? the modern ladder. We now, did that clock go away and come back, or did it always stay there? No, it, it, it has always been in the house. Isn't that wonderful? There yeah. are quite a few things. There are a few things that have remained in the house constantly. For example, there are a pair of um, tall mirrors in the parlor that have remained in place since they were installed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just uh, one question we were talking about his closet in his bedchamber. Does Monticello retain any of his clothing? Absolutely. Um, uh, we, we don't regularly exhibit the clothing because um, textiles are so subject mm -hmm. to uh, decay. Right. Um, so they're mostly in our collection, and we have all kinds of things. We have socks with his initials in, mm. in them. We have his um, undershirt. We have a shirt, a vest, a silk vest, wow. a red waistcoat. Um, we've got lots of, actually lots of things. Wow, nice. Wow. And we've been very lucky that, that family members and the people, descendants of the people who attended the dispersal sale um, have let us know about things. That's wonderful. And in fact, we're just about to make a very important acquisition. Oh, tell us. Yeah, um, you, you'll be the first to know that we're about <laughs> to, to buy a joinery made copy or version of one of those French chairs made by Georges Jacob. Hmm. And this is a fantastic and exciting thing for for us because the joinery made furniture is a great topic as is the French furniture. So, and quite a few of the uh, joinery made pieces are plain and simple but have been much influenced by the furniture Jefferson brought back from France. Now I saw in your book that some of the French furniture had TJ, Thomas Jefferson initials. Do you find that? In, uh... No, only in one case do we mm -hmm. find that because that was the last chair that Jefferson sat in. And that was, um, those initials were carved there by his grandson-in-law, Nicholas Trist. Oh, I see, I see. The book called The Worlds of Thomas Jefferson at Monticello is going to be on the front page of our website. You just click to buy it for our listeners. So, Susan, thank you so much for joining us today, and good luck in the future of preserving Monticello. Thank you very much, and we'll look forward to your visit here, Martin. Thank you again. Thank you. This is Martin thank Willis, you. signing off.